Oh, would you look at that? There's a new episode of the Black Cast on my phone, ready to play right now. Blackcast, a Comic-Con revolution in Ontario, California, with Chris Claremont, best known for his legendary 17-year run on Marvel's X-Men titles. Welcome back to the Blackcast, Chris. Thank you. Much appreciated. Almost five years ago, I interviewed you from the Blackcast, and in the intro, uh, I said I suspect that I've read more words written by you than any other writer, which... I feel like I'm not alone in that conceit, especially somewhere here. I saw the the just the long line of people just waiting to get you to sign stuff, and I'm wondering just how often do people want to talk to you and tell you about, well, this is the first issue I read, and this is why it's so important to me. Quite a lot. Actually, I should say, which tends to piss off everybody else online, because I want to talk to them, and we talk and talk, and the line keeps getting longer, and it's... Unfortunately, frustrating for them, but um, for me, it's just like, this is cool. Well, I'm going to join that list. For me, it is Uncanny X-Men 176, which is not a great jumping on point. If you think about it, I mean, you know, any issue, sure, there's a good recap, but it's Cyclops and it was Scott and Madeline Pryor on their honeymoon. Summers. You're right. You're right. She is Madeline Summers at that point. And they go on their honeymoon, and uh, he fights the, uh, the the octopus or the squid. But there's another... It's funny, because right now you're looking at a page with Wolverine, and it's like sort of teasing some other stuff going on. And I was like, well, I want to know more about that. And that's what actually had me come back. Well, but that's the whole point. A lot is happening. Scott is going on his honeymoon, but Logan is trying to find out from Marika why she broke up the marriage. It's life. Things happen simultaneously. Well, there's so much that we could talk about from there, but uh, what I wanted to start with is, you know, we're seeing so many of your characters and stories represented on the screen these days, and I wanted to start off with kind of one of the most unique characters that uh, that you created, David Haller. First of all, how do you think he's done in the transition to television, and were you a fan of Noah Hawley's work before he started doing the show? Had you watched his uh, Fargo series? Yes, I did, and I think they're doing a splendid job. Let's sort of go back to the genesis for the character itself. You know, I mean, essentially, David is one of the strongest mutants on the planet, if not the. But this idea that the multiple personalities, you know, exhibit the different abilities. Was that something that uh, just came to you suddenly, or was it an idea you'd kind of been tooling around with for a little while? I think a little bit of both. It's like anything else. In the X-Men, it was a matter of subconscious working ferociously and and a matter of creative situational serendipity. I think the show is just visually stunning. You know, they do such a great job telling these stories that, you know, you can very easily get lost in what's going on if you're not careful, you know, and I think that when you're dealing with somebody who is that level of telepath, it, it makes perfect sense. I think that Dan Stevens does a great job. Well, I guess I should first ask, do you keep up and watch the series or do you catch up on it uh, periodically or do you watch it regularly? Both. <laughs> it's just a matter of, uh, that's a matter of schedule. If, if we're home when Wednesday nights, we watch it. If not, we catch it on reruns. 
Well, I asked that because there was a recent episode where he, you know, Dan Stevens plays several different versions of I've David. Okay. Okay. So when you see that one, it'll be uh, something to keep in mind. I, I think he did a great job. The thing is, this is Noah Hawley's vision derived from Bill's and my, I guess, foundation. Bill Sienkiewicz is in my foundation, and utilizing many of the the characters and tropes that I established in the X-Men, primarily the Shadow King, where he's going with it. I mean, I, I have my own wish fulfillment theories. Is, is my, my giggle thought was, wouldn't it be amusing if the climax of the final episode of this season was Haller waking up and realizing he was still in the bubble? the little ball, this has all been a dream. But whose dream? Who's controlling it? Is the Shadow King reaching out to him? Is it Charlie reaching out to him? The whole, there's a whole lot of possible positives, but I'm sure what will end up happening is something completely different and altogether wonderful. <laughs> um, one of the things that I like, you mentioned Bill Sienkiewicz, and you know, obviously a lot of these movies and TV shows, sometimes the original creators get you know, really quick little credits all squished together at the end. Uh, I like that there's like a full screen, you and Bill. You know, I mean, I don't know if, that, if that's much to you, but to me, it's oh, like... Right, it becomes a trend. I very much would be, I would be very intrigued to see if there is a similar acknowledgement in Dark Phoenix. I felt that one of the one of the few things that was a serious detriment to my enjoyment of Days of Future Past was the fact that there should have been a credit based on the original story by myself and John Byrne, based on the characters created by Stan Lee, Len Wein, Dave Cockrum and me. I guess on television, well, let's put it this way, the Netflix shows, they seem to have the time for however long they want the credits to be. So for like Iron Fist and Daredevil, I don't think you'll get everybody, but you see a lot of the writers. But again, it's like I'm talking about, it's this little tiny thing. You have to be looking for it. Yeah, you know? No, no, I'm, I understand that. I, trust me, I've sat through enough Marvel f movies where it's the teeny tiny credit at the end of the, tra at the, end of the trail. That's not what I'm saying. The thing, the point here is that if you're taking something like Legion that is, that is clearly the product of two creators, in the original product of two creators, and adapting it, acknowledging that is, is at the least courteous. But again, Days of Future Past is an adaptation of John's and my story. The fudgy edges, i.e. the events of the story, are different. Instead of what happened in the com in the, the comic, where you have an attack on Richard Nixon in Washington, but the core story, the X Men in the future fighting to prevent their annihilation by the Sentinels, sending a character in this case Logan as opposed to to Kitty, back to 1970 to make a change, that's the story, and it to me it was a missed opportunity to acknowledge. A truth and it's unfortunate and it likely wouldn't have happened it shouldn't have happened well and in the case of that film it's particularly egregious because you know of the concept but the the actual title is is the title of the movie you know a lot of times the title of the comic is not necessarily the title but it's you know in so many ways but 
you know, it's like if if you if you cover a song and you change it radically, you you still you know you still have to pay the original songwriter. And I you have to credit the original songwriter. The point is, there's no two ways around it. Days of Future Past was a straight adaptation of the original story. The changes that were made were to acknowledge the different structural and physical reality of the film continuity. The comic was the past reaching out to an unknown future, or an unknown future reaching back to a known present and making a change. So at the end, you have the X-Men looking at Charlie and saying, did we change anything? And Charlie's saying, well, I don't know. Well, if we wait till we get there, it'll be too late. So we have to keep actively working now to change the present to make sure that future doesn't happen. The movie starts from the present looking back. So when you get to the end of the movie, everything's all right. The point is it's the same story under the same title. And I am egocentric enough and childish enough to want to say it should have acknowledged the fact that this wasn't original, this was a derivative work, and to do so publicly. But that's Fox. You know, hopefully, if it were, if the X-Men canon returns to Marvel, and they do another straight adaptation, oddly enough, like Dark Phoenix, maybe it will be different. We'll see. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, I understand your frustration as the creator, but as anyone who has read those original works, it, it is the sort of thing that we notice. And I, I, I mean, I guess there's not really anything to change unless they decide to change it. Save the money. Sort of uh, backtracking to Legion for a second. You were talking about wish fulfillment, and I don't quite know how expensive it would be to animate. But uh, I was speaking with a friend of mine about the series, and I just thought it'd be great if there was a sequence where it was animated in that Bill Sankiewicz style from New. Mutants. I mean, it would just be the sort of a nice nod. I mean, I can't imagine. You know, that, but that's Noah's sure. Balewick. Uh, I would not presume to tell him how to do it. I just enjoy the fact that what he's doing is true to the spirit and the reality of the character that Bill and I created. And the fact that Dan Stevens looks like him is creepy. Wonderful, but creepy. For all, as far as I'm concerned, I found myself saying, well, clearly, Beauty and the Beast was one of David's weird imaginations. <laughs> Happily making a lot of money at the box office. Who knew that Legion could sing that well? You know, I, I personally would just love to see the hair at some point. It is that it is. I find I am fascinated by Farouk. I'd like to see where that's going. I'd like to see how it ends up. Um, I'd like to see what happens next. So, you know, as far as as that goes, the series has, has at least as, from my perspective, won its battle. I'm in for the long haul. Uh, let's speak about uh, Farouk. The actor's name is Naveed Nigaban, and he joined the cast this year as the Shadow King himself, as Amal Farouk. And for me, you know, a lot of times, as somebody who's familiar with the comics, you always have to just deal with the fact that they often don't look the way you expect them to. And while he is not like picture perfect, like he stepped out of the page, he looks so much like I would imagine the Shadow King in the way that I think of him, that I think that the casting is great, and I love sort of the way he's doing the character. How do you feel about his portrayal of, of of Amal Farouk. So far, so good. Works for me. So, the actual Farouk we first meet 
I, I believe we first meet him in Uncanny X-Men 117. It's the flashback story. And um, talk about the genesis of this character, sort of, you know, when you, obviously it's going back, you know, almost 40 years creating him. But this powerful psychic who ultimately ends up, you know, defeated and trapped on the astral plane. Mm-hmm. Well, it was just I wanted to explore Charles's past before he lost his legs and to do so in the context of defining Aurora within that past. The, the, to show that she has a history, she has a reality, that hers and Charlie's paths crossed once. And uh, again, just fill in various gaps of what I'd hinted at from the very beginning. Back to the, the Shadow King. Uh, for me personally, I thought one of my favorite usages of the character in the comics was when he uh, possessed karma from the New Mutants. I don't even think it's fair to say that she was morbidly obese just because of what he did. I, I always think of it as like hut-like. And it's such a dark concept to take this superhero and just turn them into something like that. Do you remember specific inspiration for this is what I'm going to do to karma? Yeah, because... For for Farouk, mutants are disposable. He you know he has he has no regard for his hosts because he just casts them away and finds a new one. And for him to turn karma into this thousand kilogram travesty, well, a he was indulging himself without limit, and b what more awful thing could he do to a young girl? Who in this instance. And that was why the essence of the New Mutant Special Edition was actually how she heals herself. And the way she heals herself is she's dumped in the middle of the Asgardian desert, a billion miles from anywhere, and she figures she's just going to die. And then there's a girl in distress. And like it or not, Sean can't ignore that. She is a good person. She is a hero at heart. So she picks herself up, and literally she and the kids start walking across the desert. And a considerable enough time, sufficient enough time passes for her to not only lose all the excess weight, and fortunately because she's young, she isn't left with giant sagging. Sagging everything. Yeah. And because she's young, by the time she's done, and with Art Adams drawing it, she's in perfect health. But the, the point here is that, derives from a fra- phrase my uncle used to say, to live is to struggle. Well, to live is to suffer is to struggle. But the final lesson therein is from the struggle comes over adversity comes a sense of confidence, a sense of strength, a sense of purpose, a sense of achievement, and the reality that to a certain extent your fate is in your own hands, you just can't give up. And from in this instance, it was to show it wasn't that Charlie could come down and press a button and she would be instantly cured. She had to go through it herself. She had to work out her, her anger, her, she had to get herself in shape. 
Uh, it's funny that you were talking about this part of it because it's actually right here in my notes that I always appreciated that there's this benevolent gesture at the end of that journey in the Numian Special Edition that Loki, you know, he reverts everybody else to the way they started the storyline, but he just feels like it would be particularly cruel if he reverted her back to that and he lets her stay the way she is. Uh, I, I don't know, I always think that it's like, it, it's great because, you know, these so-called villains are not as one-dimensional as people might think. You know, even Loki has a heart. It's not a heart, it's self-preservation, because if he did that, if he, he reverted karma to what she was, then A, she would go out and do it again, except now, my, my feeling was, in this instance, it was Loki as the adversary assessing his opponents and saying, I do not want them back here again as my adversaries. Even I am not that stupid. And besides, I tried to crush them. It didn't work. Next time, I'll try to seduce them. Maybe that'll work. He's, he's, it's not that he's benevolent. It, he's just not stupid. And for me, the best adversaries, the best villains, aren't always maniacal, slavering v creeps. They are charming. They do. I mean, now he's done, I'll do something nice because I'm not that evil. <laughs> this time. And the last thing he does, though, is pick up the, the little figurine of Aurora. And it's, you know, next time. Next time. We'll have, the, we'll have our talking. Maybe I'll win. Yeah, and I mean, those are obviously the, the best adversaries are the ones that, you know, seem more human. I mean, to... Well, again, it's... In, when, when I did the FF X-Men crossover fight, the whole point is Dr. Doom is doing... He plants a seed in the FF archives that may never hatch. But if it does, it could destroy them. Well, it does. And it almost does destroy them, except there comes a point where they, they reach down into themselves and figure out, decide not to be destroyed. But the point is that for Doom, it was an, a mental exercise. For Sue, it was personal. And you know the, the, the story ends with a scene where he's just sitting there eating this wonderful Latvian caviar, which you must try, Susan, it's absolutely splendid. And she just says, you know, you really don't want to make me angry, Victor. You've never seen me angry. You don't want to. Why, Susan? I mean, it's, yes, it is a fencing match. But what she's basically saying is, pull this shit again, I'll kill you. And Doom's going, oh, you could try. And Sue says, no, I'll do it. Don't, don't, don't mess with me. She's saying things that Reed would never say, that even Ben would never say. She, she's letting Doom know that she will go to levels he can't imagine. And he better, get, he better listen. You know, she's not playing. She's fighting for her family. And you really don't want to piss off the mom lion. Those are extremes of moments that, that for me, are definitions of character. And that's what we should play with, or at least what I'd like to play with. Again, there's a struggle. Johnny Snap fires his flame and incinerate almost incinerates Aurora, leaves her with a mangled arm and scars all over it. It takes Doom's skill to to save her. 
Johnny can't call back the flame. He can't make. He can't say I'm sorry. He can't repair the damage. He needs Doom to do that. The thing we've lost, we lose a lot. It seems in current continuity is how physically dangerous these characters are. Not simply to unpowered normal humanity, of which there are less and less in the books as it is anyway, but to themselves. It seems it's getting harder for the writers and the readers to respect that, which is sad. You're, you're talking sort of about the way the X-Men fit into the, the Marvel Universe as a whole, and that was something that I always liked was when, you know, a good example, I was thinking back on the, the Kulan Goth saga, and, you know, that had Spider-Man and the Avengers as well, just sort of, you know, incidentally. I mean, you know, New York's a big city, but there's a lot of superheroes in it, so it, it, you'd think that they'd run into each other more often. Yeah. Well, I would say because if something big is happening, I feel like Spider-Man's Spider-Sense should always be going off. <sighs> I mean, Avengers, the Avengers have a mansion. The X-Men have a school. Uh, but there is a certain suspension of practical disbelief, or practical suspension of disbelief. We can't have everybody running around. By rights, yes, Galactus shows up by the Baxter building and starts building his giant gizmo. Why are the FFs the only people who are involved? Where the hell are the Avengers? Where are the X-Men? Where is everybody? Well. They're in their own books. Sorry, they weren't paying attention. By the time everything happened, by the time they could get there, it was over. Which, okay, that's, that's a reasonable explanation, rationale. Maybe it wouldn't be as considered as interesting now. I don't know. Or as plausible now. But for me, the advantage, the convenience of placing everybody in New York... It anchored Marvel in a real world in a way that Superman living in, Go in Metropolis and Batman in Gotham City and Flash in Star City and, and you know, ver all the uh, whatever over at DC did not have. Everything there was fiction. Everything there was theoretically a lie. Therefore, who cares? They're not real people. They're not real places. It, it eh. For here, this is neighborhoods. This is real stuff. Um, and that made it more kinetic, more relatable, more impactful to me as a young reader. And I liked it. As a writer, my preference, my feeling was, as far as I could, was concerned, all the other books could have Manhattan. They could have New York. They could have the, the whole North American continent. I didn't care. I'll just take the other four continents five continents and have a good time because for me the the fun was exploring all the disparate cultures all the disparate philosophies all the peoples in the rest of the world that led me to create my own little enclaves like madrapur in the far east and genosha in the indian ocean off of africa and try to give the x-men its own distinctive independent continuity in the same sense that the Kree always showed up, I guess, in the Avengers, the Skrulls always showed up in the FF, the Badoon showed up in the Silver Surfer. So I invented the Shi'ar. But there's also the time period where the X-Men relocate to Australia. You know, I mean, there's the gimmick for how they can travel so easily, but I always thought... They had alien help. Roma 
cast us, you know, basically magic them from place A to place B. But the, you know, Roma was a celestial being uh, up there on the level, the same level or higher than the Watcher. So she dealt with reality itself as opposed to, you know, planets and, and stars and galaxies. They could do stuff like that. Um, it was a way of both conveniently getting from point A to point B, but also from for putting the X-Men and the readership in their pl proper place in the universal scheme of things. And for saying, time to get down to Earth. I mean, the first thing they did was, one of the first episodes we did was a, a Christmas story where they found in their town the cache of goods and of stuff stolen by uh, the Reavers. Well, the, the X-Men did the, the X-Men thing. They gave them back. So we had a Christmas issue where they returned stuff to everybody they could. Um, why? Because we just gone through this whole huge fight with Aurora's ancestral enemy, and we wanted to put the world back together and give everybody a breath before we moved on to the next tragedy. Which always seems the case. There's always a, another tragedy around the corner. We're a melodrama. That's what we do. Because of the, the time that I was reading the new issues, uh, I was like 9 or 10 at the time. I always liked when the X-Men would interact with Power Pack. Of all the teams, that was always one that got me excited because I was a kid and I sort of identified with them. Uh, I was thinking very specifically about one issue. Uh, little Katie Power is in Uncanny X-Men 205, which is a really dark story with Lady Deathstrike. But I was sort of thinking about it in preparing for this conversation that there's really this very strong parental bond with Logan and not just Katie Power, but also Kitty and later Jubilee. Uh, and to me, I always had a sense that, oh, one day we're going to find out that, you know, he he had a, a daughter or something. And never, not that, that we ever quite got that, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit about, you know, sort of Logan as a parent, you know, to these these younger superheroes that he meets. It, that was the idea. I mean, that's the whole point. It, it's Logan saying to Kitty, to Katie in, um, in that episode, close your eyes. Why? Just close your eyes. Trust me. I'll come back for you. Why? Because in the next four pages, he's going to cut the living shit out of everybody. And, and she's six years old. He doesn't want her to see it, and which is exactly what he does. Yes, that he is a parental figure. And yes, that was the whole point of what's going on. I mean, a lot of this comes from my conception of who he is as a character, which is fundamentally different from the way he has evolved over the years since I left the X-Men the first time. My vision of him has always been that Sabretooth is his father. What happened? Well, in, we've, I've established over the years in continuity that the, there, he was involved in the Princess Bar in Madripoor with its owner, who is this short woman, a, a woman of restricted height, named Seraph. And there's some sort of connection between them. Well, the untold story that I would uh, that I was always had in the back of my head that I was never going to tell, but would always be there, is that that's his mother. And way back in the dawn of whenever, Sabretooth met Seraph, and they had shenanigans, and she got pregnant. Sabretooth didn't care. It's like he loves them and leaves them. But Seraph discovered, you know. She's an angel. She was given a choice. She either goes back to heaven, leaves her child, goes back to heaven, 
or stays on Earth. And she decided staying on Earth with her child was more important, but it cost her everything and made her mortal. So that's where Wolverine gets the nobility in him. He takes after his mother. That's also where he gets his height. He takes after his mother. That's what pisses Sabretooth off because as far as Sabretooth's concerned, any son of mine, any offspring of mine, but especially my son, should be like me, perfect. You know, a bastard, but perfect. I am the ultimate killing machine. My son should be the ultimate killing machine. And ideally, he should prove it by killing me. I mean, I, get a, I have a healing factor, I'll get better, but he should kill me. And that's why every year on Wolverine's birthday, Logan's birthday, Sabretooth comes up and tries to kill him and always wins because Wolverine won't fight his father. They both know he'll get better, but from, from Wolverine's perspective, from Logan's perspective, it's a, this is a point of honor. I'm not fighting my dad. And from Sabretooth's perspective, it's like, you're a you dumbass. Fight me. No. In terms of parental, I mean, this is my continuity, but Logan's been a part of Kitty's life since before she, before she was born. He met her in the 1930s when she went back in time. He went through Vietnam working with Charles Xavier and Kitty's father, who was a helicopter pilot there, and bonded with both of them. He's been looking over their, both their shoulders all this time. And is there a link with Kitty? Yes, there is. But that's, again, those are stories that I've hinted at, I've kind of, I have to, sort of told in, in X-Men Forever. But the thing is, it doesn't matter because none of the continuity I've established or want to establish is any, has any role or relationship to existing Marvel continuity because the editors and the current or the ongoing writers aren't interested in it, which is fine by me. I don't, I don't really care about what they're doing. That's what they're doing. What I'm doing is telling my stories. They are no more or less valid than any other stories at Marvel, which is, I have to say, sort of a shame because that was one of the differentiations between Marvel and DC. Nothing at DC really means anything because it's all fungible, depending on who's writing them. Superman is always Superman, nothing will change. Batman is always Batman, nothing will change. They will find a way to break up the relationship, I assume, between him and Catwoman, uh, because it's just not practical. Marvel was always presented the sense that there was something better in terms of possibilities and outcomes, but that's a very mid-20th century, late 20th century iteration that may not be valid in the current era. Right, and I think that for a lot of people who are, you know, my generation, the comics we read, especially like in the 80s, a lot of those stories are sort of like pushed aside. And look, I understand it's evolving. They, the thinking is that you want new generations to read these comics. And I guess it's off-putting to see issue 800 or issue 1000. But at the same time, I was always fascinated. You know, granted, the issues were only like, you know, 200 when I was a kid. But at the same time, you feel like they they must feel that 
those stories maybe aren't as valid as what they want to do now, or maybe they're just more concerned about, well, what's going to make for a, a good movie? What does Disney want us to do? Or what is the Warner Brothers studio in the case of DC? Um, but uh, the, it's the sort of thing that people like myself find frustrating. And, and why I don't read monthly comics anymore is just things like there was that period when Peter Parker wasn't Spider-Man anymore. And I, it was just, you know, I was very, I was indignant. I was just like, you can tell me that, but to me, Peter Parker, Spider-Man. And, uh, if, if you want it to be somebody else for a little while, that's great. But uh, I don't know. I just I just wasn't interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to sort of transition to something that is going on right now, I couldn't help but be excited uh, when I heard that uh, Kitty and Colossus were going to get married. And not for anything that I'd really thought about it in a while, but uh, I I always liked the two of them together. I always uh, Kitty is one of my favorite characters, probably because she was so young when I was reading the comics, and you know somebody that I could identify with, like I was talking about with Power Pack. Um, and you did write one of the stories in the wedding special, which is not when they actually get married. Um, uh, talk a little bit about that story contributing to that, which is a li- kind of a history of Kitty with the X Men, but also Kitty with Peter. Well, I just, it's, I am probably not the person to talk to about this because I have a very primal feeling regarding these events in uh, comic books and the, the ongoing success of them in comic books. Part of me is thinking if I had a full issue to do a story about the pre-wedding rather than just 10... Ten random, you know, ten pages in a in a mini book. I would have my I would have had Kitty and Aurora going out for drinks, and Kitty wanting to know why should I have any faith in my marriage when yours didn't work, or Aurora wondering why am I advising Kitty to get married when T'Challa fucked me over. I have, I have, my, my basic reservation is that the minute they get married, you're saying pr- primally, Days of Future Past is, is inescapable, which I think is a deci- an editorial decision and a direction that we shouldn't want to go in. Uh, that's that's fair. I, I hadn't thought about it in any of that way, and uh, I just, just not had the way I had thought about it. Not that I'm saying that you know I hadn't really thought about as long certain- as Kitty and Colossus are not married, Days of Future Past is off the rails. That means there are no Sentinels, there are no Mega Sentinels, there is no massacre, there is no annihilation. The minute they get married, you you've gotten that the train back on that track. At this point, easily graspable moment when you can derail it again. Uh, speaking of Days of Future Past, one of the things that I had wondered is, you know, you have from that timeline the character of Rachel for Summers. I know she goes by Rachel Gray now, mm-hmm. but at that point she's introduced. Jean is dead. Did you think about how that would be rectified, or did you just? No, Jean was dead. Jean was always supposed to stay dead. Why do you think Scott got married? If we had known four years before that X Factor was coming into existence, that the team would be brought back together again, that Gene would be resurrected, we'd have gone a totally different direction. We took Jim at his word. Gene was dead. That's why 
you know, my my passionate argument to him in those days after I found out about it was if you do this, you destroy Scott as a character. You, you know, you can't, it's one thing to break off an engagement. It's something fundamentally different to walk out on your wife and your newborn child for your old girlfriend. It says something primal about Scott that he would do it. It says something primal about the X-Men, the other X-Men and that they would let him do it. It says something primal about Jean, a telepath, that she does not object to it. But they did it anyway. And for me, he never recovered. And that's why we, you see, and I spent two years dancing around the story and keeping everybody at arm, serious arm's length because we didn't want to reveal her re resurrection to the X-Men until we had an idea of what we were going to do about it. Because there's a moment in the 10-page the story, which, you know, the two moments that directly relate to this. The first is Kitty's deep fear that everything in her life is a lie and that she's still trapped in the giant bullet, which is my own quiet way of saying, if you ever want to reboot, this is the way to go. But the other side of it is, and again, this, this relates to a joke I was telling in the last panel today. When I was writing Nightcrawler, the miniseries, we'd just gotten started, and Logan re is among the X-Men who rescue Nightcrawler and bring him back from heaven. But it establishes in that moment that, okay, there's a heaven, that it is accessible from Earth. The X-Men went up and got him and brought him back. Wow. But wait, if they can bring him back, why can't they bring anyone else back? Why, why not Thunderbird? Why not you know, Banshee, why not, you know, okay. But then in issue six, Logan dies. I mean, my first reaction was, so what? So we go back and get him. Well, we can't do that. Okay. But we have to have a memorial issue. Okay. So then I have a, my idea was Nightcrawler gathers up the X-Men and they go up the top of the hill overlooking the break Stone Lake, and they tell stories. They light a fire and tell story, Logan stories. And I was going to do like a bunch of three-page vignettes, Logan stories I'd never told before. And it would be fun. It would be a quiet fun. It would be about the past, but leading into the future. But the punchline would be the, real, the gradual growing realization, I hoped, on the part of the readers, that every X-Men telling the story has one thing in common. It's Colossus. It's Betsy. It's Rachel, it's Kitty. They've all died and been resurrected. And at the end of the story, someone you know, says to, to Kurt, let's start a tontine. When's he coming back? We all came back. Why can't he come back? And everyone says, this is a great, great giggle and, and until Kurt says, no, you don't get it. What do you mean? Well, we can go get him. No, you're not, you don't get it. What? Think of where he is. He's in heaven. Right. Who else is there? And they're all looking dumb. We don't know. And then suddenly Rachel, oh, shit. Right. Gene's there. Which one of you idiots is going to go up there and tell Gene you're taking Logan back from her after she's got him for the first time all to herself in heaven? You want to be the one to tell 
the phoenix that her sweeties are out of it, you know? And they, okay, we'll leave that alone. My point is, in long-winded terms, when I did the True Friends miniseries, Kitty and Rachel go back in time to 1936, and Kitty finds herself, they can't figure out how to get back to the present. So it's like, okay, we're stuck in 1936. Well, Kitty is a 16-year-old Jew superhero. What do I know about 1936 that no one else knows? I know about the Holocaust. What am I going to do? I'm an X-Men. I'm going to stop it. But you're going to change history. Fuck that. I'm, I'm not going to stand by and watch the Nazis kill 6 million Jews and 12 million people all told, innocent people, if I have the power to stop it. I'll go in there and I will kill everyone, starting with Hitler, and work my way down. And that's her plan. And along the way, she meets a young man, a young Scots noble, and they fall in love. And it's true love. It's, you know, he asks her to be his woman, his, I'm the Laird of Kinross, I would like you to be my lady. And she says yes. And then before anything can seriously happen, she saves the day, and she and Jean and Rachel get bounced back to the present. And she learns that the young man she loved died in the war. And that's the way it goes. But the point here is choices are made, events are set in motion. You can't, from her perspective is, why do we always come back from the dead, but not the people we love? Why did my father die in Genosha? No one's gonna bring him back. No one's gonna bring Alistair Kinross back. No one's gonna bring the real people in our lives. No one's gonna bring Uncle Ben back. Real people die for real. Superheroes, it's bullshit. And I think from my perspective, it's marriage is one very small step removed from that reality. There isn't a marriage in comics at Marvel, certainly, and definitely at DC, that's worked. Except Reed and Sue. The Pims have crashed and burned. Aurora and T'Challa have crashed and burned. Peter and Mary Jane have crashed and burned. There's no history for it. So, okay, Kitty and Peter are going to get married, but what happens in two years or three years when there's a new editor and a new writer and, and suddenly the characters are stagnant? You can't vanish wedding vows. You can't undo what's been done. Someone has to lose. Someone, the, it, you can never be not married. And once you're married, you're not a kid anymore. You're a grown-up. And if you're a grown-up, part of what you have to ask yourself is, why the hell am I running around in skin-tight costumes saving the omniverse every week? Do none of them have a bank account? Do none of them have a job? Do none of them have ambitions? Do none of them want a family? Do none of them want a real life? These are questions you can avoid when you're playing with a transitory moment. But this is why, you know, when I had her go back to the University of Chicago, Kitty was saying, I want a real life. I want friends. I want normal people. I want a future. I want a 
earn my degree. I want to run for mayor. I want to run for governor. I want to run for president. I don't want to play skin tights forever. But the dynamics of the medium, the necessity of the real world that the publishing company lives in requires that you do that. So you have to balance it. And making the most non-casual real-life commitment imaginable, it may seem like a wonderful thing at the time, but again, the problem with T'Challa and Aurora is you have two alpha characters. You have two leading people characters. You have the Black Panther and you have Aurora. Technically speaking, Aurora is a higher ranked character in the Marvel firmament than T'Challa. For no other reason, her book's been way more successful. Yet, the book is the Black Panther and she's Mrs. Black Panther. She's immediately demoted. She's immediately become second tier. Marvel has, by this act, subordinated her to a guy. Is that a message you want to send? Well, to the point you made about Reed and Sue, they were sort of, we kind of always knew them together, and, and I can see how that worked. That's why I guess somebody like me, I was like, oh, it seems great that Peter's marrying Mary Jane and not marrying, say, Black Cat or someone else that, you know, he was involved with. Peter marrying anybody. Well, I guess at that point, they felt like, well, he's in grad school, he's old enough, and they thought so, but... Should he be in grad school, and should he be old enough? Well, clearly, the, the editors thought otherwise. And... The problem is, he's in grad school, fine. That means, why is he going out and playing Spider-Man? You know, do they, do they live together? Do they have a family? He's living off of Mary Jane's earnings as a model, for Christ's sake. Is that the direction you want to go? What happens if he is hurt on the job? What happens if a supervillain comes after him and finds Mary Jane instead? The minute you're married in this context, you are the wife of an active duty member of the armed forces who is constantly on deployment. That's a totally different dynamic. This is where you end up with stories in NCIS or wherever, where the, the, the partner left behind is tempted by something outside, you know, another person, another situation, another weakness. But is that what you want to have happen to Aurora and to Chala? Is that what you want to have happen to Kitty and Colossus? People get hurt. But in this case, it's going to be getting hurt with inescapable consequences, as opposed to Colossus went to, into secret wars and came back, and, and Kitty, who loves him, and he knows she loves him, and he loves her, he thinks, but I met Zaji, and I fell in love, and she died. And Kitty's like, oh, God, he really means this. And he's telling her, it's over. And as far as I was concerned, writing it, Jim set this situation up in Secret Wars. Okay, this is the consequence. You can't call back this moment. And it may take 10 or 15 years to get to the point where they can talk to each other again. But if it happens now, that's not going to be it. Again, I'm... I'm speaking from prejudice, and it's a deep, fundamental, long-lasting prejudice because I have my own vision of who these guys are. 
and maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong because if I'm not wrong, then again, you've got another giant clusterfuck where T'Challa walks into the room and tells Aurora, our marriage has been annulled by the Wakandan blah, blah, blah. We're done. And it's like, well, fuck you, you little prick. And, but now Ta-Nehisi Coates is like, oh, that was a dumbass move. Let's see if we can get them back together again. And it's like, well, okay. But why? Well, this made me think of uh, two questions. The first is, you know, you mentioned Jim Shooter. Was there a mandate that, you know, Kitty's 13 and a half or maybe 14 by then and Peter's 18 or 19, they shouldn't be together? Or did, was that just, a, was that something that they made you? It, for him, it was like, it gave him a cool, meaningful moment in Secret Wars. And Colossus was the only X-Men with an, with an exterior relationship that that could be affected by it logan wouldn't care aurora wasn't involved with anybody uh nightcrawler didn't have anybody really other than amanda but that was very casual so peter was it uh speaking of all the people left behind i always thought for secret wars i always felt bad for daredevil that basically everybody goes except him and you know that week must have been no pun intended hell for him you know because i feel like all the stuff was going on and there was nobody i mean he didn't know what the hell was going on with secret wars he was too busy dealing with his own life right but i just mean like what's going on in new york during that week everybody's gone there's nobody to step up and and i've the city's not that dire I mean, I would be surprised if he even noticed, if anybody even noticed realistically. Come on. We're not talking about the government of the United States vanishing or the, or the Marine Corps suddenly disappearing. We're talking about 20 superheroes suddenly going, boop, we've disappeared. Well, most of them are clandestine anyway. No one knew the X-Men. They could disappear, and at that point in time, no one would know. Well, it's a good point also that the majority of the best-known supervillains also went, so I guess you know Daredevil didn't have anything to worry about. I, this is where you're presuming that there's a supervillain TV channel and a superhero TV channel which broadcasts all this information to everybody, and, and it doesn't. It's, no one is automatically absolutely aware of everything that happens around them. That's, that's absurd. And that's getting caught up in the whole idea, well, we've got to make all the pieces of this universe fit together. That's utter and complete bullshit. The essence, the thing that we keep for, that has been more and more forgotten in the last 20 years with this ongoing editorial embrace of absolute crossovers, the, the problem with the X-Men going public is, oh, look, Rogue has just joined the Avengers. We now have something called Uncanny Avengers. Then why should I give a goddamn about her? What is unique about the Avengers? What is unique about the Defenders? What is unique about the X-Men? Why should I care about any group any more or less than any other group? And if I don't care, why am I spending four bucks an issue to read about them? You bond with characters. You bond with ideally people. 
if I turn on NCIS one week and it's Gibbs and his team, and then the next week it's not Gibbs and his team, they've just brought in everybody from CSI, and they're the Gibbs team. And then the week after that, they brought in Hawaii Five O, and they're the Gibbs team. What does it matter then? What, what, you know, you watch a show like NCIS because you care about the core characters. If someone dies, it should mean something. If someone leaves the show, it should mean something. If someone interesting comes in the show, you want to bond with them and see what happens next. You want to care. If you don't care, you can turn the channel. And if you turn the channel, then the network loses what it hoped to have. The same thing applies here. If I'm writing the X-Men, I don't want, I don't care about people reading the Avengers. I don't care about people reading the FF. I want them to read the X-Men. And the way I get them, I hope, to read the X-Men is by having them care about the characters. I don't want the X-Men teaming up with every goddamn group in the universe because then they're not unique anymore. They're not special. They're just cogs in a machine. And who cares about cogs in a machine? You throw them away and replace them with new cogs. For me, the most dangerous moment in The Last Jedi is when Leia gets blown out of, of the starship. And it's like, oh my God, Leia's dead. She's floating out through space. What are they going to... Well, is this their way of dealing with Carrie Fisher? Yeah, that's exactly what I thought in that moment. I'm like, okay, this is an interesting way to do it. And why did they think of it a year ago? And then she wakes up and flies back to the ship. And I'm going, what the... F I mean, we're talking outer space, right? We're talking like, where did Leia become a superhero? But she is. Except it's never mentioned again. No one mentions a fucking word about it. When it actually happens, it's like, how did she do that? I don't know. What does it mean? I don't know. We're just fleeing from our lives, trying not to get blown up. And, you know, in superhero characters, you have established there are people who can breathe in space or whatever and don't need it. But in this Star Wars universe, we've never had that before. And you're right. It's not acknowledged. And it's so significant. But it's just like, oh, okay, she's, she's fine now. Well, again, the other, the other side of the coin. You spend all of Thor 3 building relationships and making everybody care about, wow, here's this last Valkyrie. She's cool. This is neat. Loki is redeemable. Everything's happening. And in the first five minutes of Infinity War, it's all rendered moot. In movie terms, okay, I get that. You know, they're not coming back for another one. Everyone wants to move on. But in comic terms, if you do that, it's like, what the fuck? Because the fundamental difference is in movies, the actors are getting older. They're getting more expensive. They're getting more predictable in terms of how the audience reacts to them. In comics, everything goes on forever. And if you do something like that, then sadly, the audience knows it's bullshit. Nobody dies anymore. Nobody's at risk anymore. So why should you care? That, I think, is a challenge to the successful future of this medium that, you know, maybe there, that means there isn't going to be a successful future to this medium.
Well, in terms of Infinity War and the deaths, you know, I think that they really overplayed their hand in the the short stretch when you have Black Panther disappear and you have Spider-Man die. That's a billion dollars worth of movies that you're saying you're not going to make anymore. And also, you know, Sony owns Spider-Man. So, so no, so you know in the minute that, oh, they'll be back, like, pretty quickly, you know, so that it doesn't have any, it doesn't really resonate with you. It, <laughs> Marvel released their 10-year plan two months ago. And you can see Black Panther 2, Black Panther 3, Black Panther 4, Infinity War this. You know, everyone, of course they're going to be back. Or some of them will be back. And of course, Spider-Man 2 is already in production. You know he's coming back. That's, you know, that's movies. But, I mean, what will keep everybody hopefully on the edge of their seat is how are they going to do it? But in comics, you know there's going to be a trade-off in film because the actors are getting older. Gibbs is 15 years older than when NCIS started. At some point, nature will take its course. At some point, Ducky will have to move on. I'm using that as a paradigm because it's a show I like. Matt Dillon got to the point where he couldn't do, you know, James Garner couldn't do it anymore. That doesn't happen in comics, which is why you have to be careful and resonant about how you treat everybody. Not resonant in the sense of worshipful, resonant in the sense of leaving as many options on the table as possible. The panel was talking about he had a wonderful time writing Peter and Mary Jane Married because he based their relationship on his own relationship with his wife, which is a legitimate thing to do. It made perfect sense. It worked. But if the next writer doesn't have that relationship, isn't married, doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, then suddenly you have a problem. Then suddenly it becomes not witty and amusing but cliche and that's where maybe that that perhaps is what leads you down the road to cutting a deal with Mephisto which is like oh for god's sakes yeah that is exactly sort of the thing that I read about and I was like I was just relieved that I wasn't reading active comics anymore was that whole like yeah Mephisto's undoing a, a, a wedding and it's just you know not the sort of thing I was interested in uh, I did want to sort of tie up a loose thread on sort of weddings and uh, you know we'll wrap up in a moment but you were talking about you know the weddings that didn't work and I my understanding is your plan for Scott and Madeline was he was going to retire he was going to move to uh, Alaska and she just happened to be a lady who looked like Jean Grey, not some you know clone, as it turned out to be. It was a tease. That was always a tease, and that's why Scott spent a year courting her, and actually, at the end, coming face to face with that demon and rejecting it. And then to have it turn out to be true is just like, oh, you know, that's not fair. Yeah, and I mean, that was sort of my point, though, was like, that's a wedding where I feel like you felt like it was going to work because he was going to just marry this this girl that he liked and he was going to, you know, again, quit the game. That's why when X Factor was pitched and I, my head exploded, I went to shoot her and I gave him an alternate, my alternative, which is leave Scott and Madeline alone, have them come back, bring him back, 
create tension in the marriage because he's coming back to run X-Force, but bring in a new woman. Bring in someone who could give Bobby and Hank and Warren something to do. In this case, it was Jean's sister. And to me, it would have made for a much more potentially successful iteration because you were taking the existing reality and, and making new stuff out of it, not just rebooting the old. And unfortunately, Jim had already made his commitment to, to John and Roger Stern and, and Kurt Busiek and others. And that was that. And I hate to say it, I think the events, the subsequent events, proved me right. And again, Scott never has never recovered. Even to the point where he and Gene get married, it was like, that's such, I mean, ick. And of course, then she dumps her, or he dumps him, or she dies, and he ends up with Emma. Right. That's a, that's another one of those things that I heard about, didn't read, and was just like, that just doesn't seem right to me. I always, I often feel rewarded for not reading because I'm just, maybe it's just because I'm getting older. I just like to sort of live in the bubble with the stories that I knew and I liked, and I, I just like things the way they were. But uh, see, then it's, a, it's so funny because we talked so much about all of this, and it came from the point where I was a sucker, and I was excited for uh, for Kitty and Peter, but no, you're absolutely, <laughs> yes, now you're depressing me. Well, it's... I mean, it was only four months ago that she was engaged to Peter Quill. What the hell happened there? I mean, it's just like, what? The problem is you have new writers, new editors, new policies, new this, new that. I don't know who anybody is anymore. I don't know why they're doing anything anymore. And my reaction as a reader is, I don't care. And if I don't care, why am I spending the money? You know, and if I'm not spending the money and not buying the books, then Marvel has a far more serious problem than somebody getting married or not getting married. We, the goal here is to create material that the reader passionately wants to buy, which means creating characters that the reader passionately wants to care about, which means creating characters who have relatable moments to the lives of the readers and live in a world that has re at least a reasonable resemblance to the world outside our doors. And for me as a reader, and yes, I grant you I'm an old fart and I'm not, you know, but what the hell, I'm a reader. I don't see it anymore. And that... That, to me, is a fundamental danger and concern that no one has yet, in my eye anyway, attempted to address. And if it isn't, I mean, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. But if, if there is not an effective way to turn books from I buy them because I've always bought them and I don't want to break my string to I got to see what happens next. Then we're in deep trouble. And that's not where you want to be. 
Well, and this is sort of how we'll wind up. That's exactly what happened to me. After you left the books, I continued to read them because I always read them. And I, I liked the characters, maybe some of the stories. Some I liked, some I didn't. But I got to a point where I believe it was uh, 1999, and uh, I had a year's worth of X-Men books, the Uncanny and the regular X-Men. And I uh, just I hadn't read them. And I was like, well, then why am I buying them? And I, I still haven't read them. And I was just, I, it was just this weird re realization. You know, I was, I was out in the workforce. I had something to do with it. I had gotten out of college. I was able to keep reading through college, you know, because that's not the real world. But I just was like, I didn't have the time. And it was, I was literally only reading two comics anymore. And I just, I just wasn't invested in it anymore. And, you know, I've read some trade paperbacks and collections and things in the years since. But I didn't, I don't know what it is. Whatever it is they did, they lost me. Mm -hmm. And I think they lost a lot of people like me, you know, when probably the worst thing that happened was sort of the the collector's market, you know, when you decided like, oh, we're going to have four versions of X-Men number one. We're going to take this crossover event. We're going to bag them and we're going to put cards in them. And I was like, well, I don't I don't want any of that. What, what about what's inside this pre-bag comic? Is it good? In some cases, in the case of something that was really well selling, you know, I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but uh, the Todd McFarlane Spider-Man number one is one of the worst stories I ever read because nothing happened in it. it Spider-Man looks great when Todd McFarlane draws him, but then I was just like, well, what is this? Why do I care about this? And then I just realized that's an extreme example, but I just didn't care anymore. I wanted to care, but I, I just didn't. And I don't know if, I don't know if you find that uh, that's something that maybe happened during the course of the 90s. There was this inflation, you know, that they were... But that's, you know, again, as Bob Harris said, woulda, shoulda, coulda. If he'd known what, ha what was going to happen seven months after I left. Maybe he would, you know. Chances are he wouldn't. He wouldn't have pushed that envelope. That that something being the creation of image and the fact that everybody walked. You know. It's <sighs> the rule of unexpected consequences applies just as effectively and absolutely to comics and Marvel and DC as it does anywhere else, and. You know, the unexpected consequence was that Dave Cockrum and I turned out to be the right people in the right place at the right time with the right team of characters, and we made a tremendously powerful and effective engine that powered Marvel for 20 years. But then what? Maybe I was, it was time for me to move on. Who knows? But you got to have something to replace it with, to, 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 energized to make it move ahead and that challenge is as primal and absolute and dominant today as it was then and will probably be as dominant in 20 years from now the job of the editors is to find that answer the job of a writer is to pitch ideas that will provide that answer and unfortunately from where I sit I'm not I don't see it, but again, I'm outside any of those creative loops, so um, I'm little better than an average reader sitting on, you know, sitting at the comic book store wondering what's coming out this week. And the risk, maybe Marvel doesn't care if I walk away, fine, but if the kids walk away, if the middle, if their older brothers and sisters walk away, what then? So. Well, it's the ball is in their court, and please God, let them find an answer. 
Yeah, you know, I have a, a two and a half year old son, so he's not at the point where he's going to be reading, but he already knows who Spider Man is. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, are they going to be able to get him? Am I going to be able to have him interested? You know, when you start with the cartoons and the movies and things, sure, but is he going to want to, even if it's the digital comics as opposed to the physical comics, are they actually going to want to read it? And I don't know if they're telling the stories that, you know, when he's six or seven, like I was when I started reading comics, is he going to want to read whoever Spider Man is and what he's doing at that point is he going to be interested in the x-men like i was and it's it's you know obviously it's hard to say but uh i sort of hold out hope i'm like well i hope that they write stories for him because they're certainly not doing it for me anymore well that's that's a challenge from every generation unfortunately well, Chris, I know we talked for a very long time, uh, as we did the last time I talked to you, and I really appreciate you taking so much time uh, out of a, after a very long day. And uh, I had three more pages of notes I didn't even get to, but that's no, no, no. That's because the answers were so good. Uh, you know, I'll uh, figure I'll talk to you again someday. But uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Chris Claremont. That was really a great conversation with Chris Claremont. I'm so glad he was so generous with his time. I really appreciated talking to him. Special thanks to everybody here at Comic. Con Revolution in Ontario, California. It was really a great time. I couldn't be happier. Well, that's all our time with Chris, and that's all I have for now. So we will see you next time on the Blackcast. Listen to Blackcast. On this episode, it's Jean Grey talking about the things that she say. So distracted, didn't feed Bay. Listen to Blackcast. Met this girl, she smiled at my face. Blackcast in Chile to my place. Had one beer, she brought a whole case. Listen to Blackcast. Sorry. Oh, sorry about that. No, 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 I'm sorry that I uh, oh. kept you so long. I just lost oh. track.